Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast to talk about War and Peace, Book 2, Chapter 14. Kudas of you faced with taking one of three bad choices as commander, staying to defend his current location, fleeing into the mountains for a possibly more defensible position, or racing the French to meet up with the main Russian troops. Given his options, do you think he chose well? He chose the last one, by the way. Would you have done the same in his shoes? Why? Also, Murat plays himself by offering a truce, believing the entirety of Kutuzov's Kutuzov's army lies before him. He wishes to wait for the French reinforcements to totally obliterate the Russians in in a one-sided encounter. Kutuzov takes advantage of this mistake and stalls the French attack even longer, allowing him to move closer to the destination. Do you think this decision on Murat's part speaks of foolishness or great leadership when taken from his position? Would you have done the same? Why? Rick Evans says, Wow, what a cliffhanger. I enjoyed the first appearance of Napoleon himself, if only in the form of a letter. Reading these war chapters day by day is like watching a car crash in slow motion. It feels like we're just about to really feel the impact. I think we are, in fact, having translated, you know, a few chapters ahead of this, I can say we are about to get some war action for sure. Snapback Kid said, totally agree. The last line made me feel both excited and sad. Suddenly, at the same time, my heart pounded a bit, thinking of what is about to unfold in the coming chapters. Cactus Jilly says, the sense of foreboding in those last few words. I think Kutuzov was in a lose-lose situation. By fortune, this choice he made seems to have given him the best chance, though. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he made the best decision. Um, because... You know, he's outnumbered. He needs reinforcements. So I think to try to get there first is... Oh, I mean, it's the best of a bad bunch, isn't it, in, ter- in terms of those options. But then he got lucky with this whole Murat debacle. And Murat has in... Uh, what was I going to say? He's in... Uh, he's indirectly bought Kudas off some time. Twisted every way, I said, holy crap, I had to pull out Google Maps to understand the geography of this. Yes, yeah, that's actually a good thing to do in these parts. Uh, after reading the beginning of the three chapters, of the sorry, the beginning of the chapter three times, and consulting the maps, I finally understand the troop movements. I think Kutuzov did what he could. I wanted to put a chess metaphor in here, but sacrificing something to save the Queen, but I didn't pay enough attention to the Queen's Gambit to understand chess. Napoleon suspects the ruse, that's why he's the Emperor General and not Murat. Agreed, what a cliffhanger and sense of foreboding in that last line. I know I love how Murat thinks he's tricked Kutuzov, but Napoleon recognises that Kutuzov is just playing along. He recognises... Um, he, he suspects Napoleon... Napoleon suspects Kutuzov's ruse, but then Kutuzov also suspects that Napoleon will detect his ruse. So Murat has tried to do a ruse, Kutuzov has ticked picked up on the ruse and started a ruse of his own. Napoleon has suspected that ruse and cancelled Murat's ruse, but Kutuzov also knows that Napoleon is going to cancel Murat's ruse, detecting Kutuzov's ruse. So um, Napoleon is ahead of the curve, and then Kutuzov is even one step ahead of that. It is very much like chess, isn't it? They're thinking moves and moves and moves ahead of each other. Um... The real Lokuro said, I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to be a soldier in Bagration's army outnumbered 8 to 1. They're likely going to get annihilated. 
they're just thrown into the fire to buy some time. Um, yeah, I guess there's a lot of that in war, though, in being part of an army, is sometimes your bit of the army gets... Your job is to buy time for the rest of the army, and uh, that's what they've got to do. I'm sure there'd be rumours that the majority of Kutuzov's army is meeting the main Russian troops. Some soldiers would be aware of what's going on. How would you maintain discipline? Regarding Murat, while the truce was a mistake, the bridge trickery was a huge win. I don't know what his batting average is, but making the occasional sly move is smart for him. Yeah, I think he just got cocky and he overplayed his hand. On a side note, I want to try kasha. I think it's just like porridge. Brett Peterson said it would be extremely hard to make this decision. I think you would have to think of men as game pieces instead of human lives you are risking in order to try to gain a strategic advantage. I can't say what I would do, only that I am not cut out to make such a decision. Yeah, I feel that. I would say the same thing about myself. Alright, let's read chapter 15, which goes like this. Prince Andre was persistent with his request to Kutuzov and was able to make it to Grunth to report to Bagration before 4 o'clock. Bonaparte's adjutant hadn't reached Murat's detachment yet, so the battle had not yet begun. None of the men in Bagration's detachment had any idea what was happening. They were still talking about peace, though they doubted it would be possible. Others were talking about a battle, but similarly couldn't bring themselves to believe how near it was. Bagration knew about Bolkonsky's good reputation, how he was a favourite and trusted adjutant, and so received him with a good show of appreciation, explaining to his, explaining to him that there would most likely be a fight that day or the next, and giving him the op- option to stay and fight or to rejoin the rearguard who would be keeping an eye on Kutuzov's retreat, which is also very important. Mind you... I doubt there's going to be an engagement today, added Bagration, as if to assure, reassure Prince Andre. If he's one of those typical little staff poofters sent here to earn himself a shiny new medal, he can fuck off to the rear guard and get his reward, but if he is legit, he can stay and fight, sure. If he's got a set of nads on him, he'll be of use, thought Bagration. Prince Andre, without replying, asked the asked Prince Bagration's permission to ride round their position to get the lay of the land, see how the troops were organised, so that he'd have his bearings if he had to execute an order. The officer on duty, a good-looking, sharply-dressed man, with a diamond ring on his forefinger, who liked speaking French even though he sucked at it, offered to show Prince André around. All around were soldiers soaked to the bone from rain, looking lost and gutted, and soldiers dragging things like doors, benches and bits of fencing from the village. Ah, see this shit, Prince? We can't get rid of these pricks, said the staff officer, pointing to the soldiers. The officers are supposed to keep them in check, but they are useless too. And there, he pointed to a little tent where a sutler was trying to sell stuff to the troops. They flock in and set up shop. This morning I shooed them away, and now look, it's full again. Pricks, I've got to quickly go scare them off, Prince. Give us a sec, yeah? Yeah, for sure, let's go in. I wouldn't mind getting a roll and some cheese, said Prince Andre. He was bloody starving. Why, don't, why didn't you say you were hungry, Prince? I would have offered you something. They hopped off their horses and went into the tent. Several officers with red and tired faces were sitting at the table eating and drinking. Right, what's all this about, gentlemen? said the staff officer in a reproachful tone of a man who had to say the same thing repeatedly. You know, you're not supposed to leave your posts like this. The Prince gave orders that no one should leave their post. No, you, Captain. 
and he turned to a thin, grubby little artillery officer who, with an uncomfortable smile, had stood up in only his stockings when they entered. He'd given his boots to the sutler to dry. "'Well, Captain Tushin, aren't you ashamed of yourself?' he continued. "'You'd think an artillery officer would set a good example, but here you are without your boots. "'The alarm might go off any second, and you'll be up shit creek without your boots.' The staff officer smiled. "'Kindly piss off back to your posts, gentlemen, all of you. "'All,' he added in a tone of command. Prince Andre couldn't help but smile as he watched the artillery officer Tushin, who, silent and smiling, shifting his weight from one stockinged foot to another, was trying his best to read the room, looking from Prince Andre to the staff officer with large, intelligent, kind eyes. "'The soldiers reckon it's nicer. feels nicer without boots,' said Captain Tushin, bashful in his uncomfortable position, and evidently trying to lighten the mood with a little joke. But before the little joke was finished, he could already tell it wasn't going to land. He was at a loss. "'Kindly piss off back to your posts,' said the staff officer, trying to preserve his gravity. Prince Andre was checking the little guy out. There was something funny about this little guy. He was quite unsoldierly, quite comedic even, but also very attractive. The staff officer and Prince Andre hopped on their horses and rode on. They continually caught up to and overtook soldiers and officers of various regiments as they rode beyond the village. Outside the village they saw to their left what looked like trenches being dug out, the freshly removed clay a vivid red. Several battalions of soldiers in short sleeves, despite the chill factor of the wind, were swarming these earthworks like a colony of ants. Spadefuls of red clay were continually flying up from behind the bank by unseen hands. Prince Andre and the officer rode up to examine the entrenchments, took a very quick look, and promptly kept moving. On the other side was a queue of soldiers cycling through by the dozen and scurrying off quick smart. Prince Andre and the staff officer had to hold their noses and put their horses to a trot to escape the foul stench of the hole-in-the-ground toilet they'd just inspected. Ah, the joys of camp life, Prince, said the staff officer. They continued riding up the opposite hill. From there the French could already be seen. Prince Andre stopped to suss out the sitch. That's our battery, said the staff officer, pointing to some cannons on the highest point. That idiot without boots we saw back there is in charge of it. You can see everything from up there. Let's go there now, Prince. That's Tushin, isn't it? Tushin. Um, let's go there now, Prince. Thanks very much. I might head up there by myself, said Prince Andre, wishing to get rid of the staff officer. For real, don't trouble yourself. The staff officer hung back and Prince Andre continued alone. The further he rode, and closer he got to the enemy, the more orderly and cheerful the troops were. The biggest shit show was back in the baggage train he had passed this morning on the name road seven miles away from the French. In Grunt he could sense some fidgeting and nerves in the troops, but the closer he got to the French lines, the more confident our troops seemed to be. The soldiers in the greatcoats were ranged in lines, the sergeant's major and company officers were doing a head count, poking the last man in each section in the ribs and telling him to hold his hand up. There were soldiers scattered all over the place, dragging logs and brushwood, building shelters while chit-chatting and laughing happily. Around the fires sat others dressed and undressed, drying their shirts and leg bands or fixing their boots or overcoats and crowding round the boilers and porridge cookers. In one company dinner was up, 
and the soldiers were practically drooling into the steaming boilers, waiting till the sample which the quartermaster sergeant was carrying in a wooden bowl to an officer who sat on a log by his shelter had been taste tested. Another company, and these were some lucky bastards because not all companies had vodka, crowded around a pockmarked sergeant with shoulders like a Ford bull bar who, tilted a, tilting a keg, filled all the canteen lids, one after another, that were being held out to him. The soldiers lifted their lids happily to their lips, happy as pigs in shit, and drained the vodka, rolled it around in their mouths, and walked away from the sergeant major with a little extra pep in their step, licking their lips and wiping them on the sleeves of their greatcoats. Their faces were so serene you'd think they were just chilling at home waiting for a peaceful nap, and not within cooey of an enemy and about to have a biff that would leave roughly half of them dead on a battlefield. After passing a regiment of light cavalry in and in the lines of the Kiev Grenadiers, fine gentlemen busy with similar peaceful affairs, near the shelter of the regimental commander higher than and different from the others, Prince Andre came out in front of a platoon of grenadiers crowding around a naked man. Two soldiers held the naked guy, while two others were striking him on the bare back with switches. The man squealed like a zombie drop bear. A stocky major was wandering up and down the line and ignoring the screams, kept saying, Real shame for a soldier to steal. A soldier should be true, blue, reliable, honourable and brave, but if he nicks shit from his mates, there is no honour in him. He's a scumbag. Get him. Get him. So, so the swishing sounds of the strokes and the desperate, unnatural screams kept going. Get him, get him, said the major. A young officer, looking bewildered and upset, stepped away from the man and looked inquisitively at the adjutant as he rode by. Prince Andre reached the front line and rode along it. Out, Our front line and the enemies were far apart on the right and left flanks, but in the centre where the men with the flag with a flag of truce had been that morning. The lines were so near together that the men could see each other's faces and speak to each other. Besides the soldiers who formed the picket line on either side, there were heaps of curious onlookers, having a sticky beak at the strange foreign enemies, making jokes and laughing. There'd been an... There'd been a... A warning not to approach the picket line, but since early morning... The officers had failed to keep sightseers away. The soldiers that formed the picket line, like showmen exhibiting a freak show, stopped looking at the French and paid attention to the sightseers and became impatient at waiting. Prince André stopped to take a squeeze at the French. Oi, look there, there, a soldier was saying to another, pointing to a Russian musketeer who'd gone up to the picket line with an officer and was talking excitedly to a French grenadier. Jeez, he's chewing his ear off. Impressive, eh? The Frenchy can hardly keep up with him. Now you, Sidorov. Wait, listen, that's really clever, answered Sidorov, who had a reputation as being a pro at speaking French. The soldier they were currently having a chuckle at was none other than Dolokhov. Prince Andrei recognised him and stopped to eavesdrop on what he was saying. Dolokhov had come from the left flank, where their, where their regiment was stationed, with his captain. Keep going, keep going, the officer egged him on craning nearer and trying not to miss a word being exchanged, though he understood none of it. Talk faster, talk harder, what's he saying? Dolokhov didn't answer his company commander, he was too focused on the heated argument he was having with the French grenadier. Naturally, the topic of their argument was the campaign. 
The Frenchman had confused the Austrians with the Russians and was adamant that the Russians had surrendered and fled all the way from Ulm, while Dolokhov was insisting that the Russians had not surrendered and had in fact beaten the French. We have orders to chase you fuckers away and that's just what we'll do, said Dolokhov. Yeah, we'll be careful that you and all your Cossacks aren't captured. Well, be careful that you and all your Cossacks aren't captured, said the French grenadier. The French eavesdroppers laughed. We'll make you dance just how you did for Suvorov, said, said Dolokhov. Que ce qu'il chant? asked the Frenchman. What's he singing about? Pfft, that's ancient history, said another, taking a guess that Dolokhov was referring to some form of war. The Emperor will teach your Savovov a lesson, just as he did to countless others. Bonaparte, said Dolokhov, but the Frenchy interrupted him. Hey, you don't call him Bonaparte, he is the Emperor. Sakranov, he spat angrily. Ah, may Satan himself have his way with your Emperor, replied Dolokhov. And then he swore at the Frenchman in a very vulgar soldier's Russian, shouldered his musket, musket and walked away. If microphones had been invented, it probably would have done a sweet mic drop too. Let's bounce, Ivan Lukic, he said to his company commander. Now that is how speaking French is done, said the soldier at the picket. Hey, Sidorov, you have a go. Sidorov turned to the French with a shrug, gave a wink and started speaking utter gibberish as quickly as he could. Eh, how you say, eh, oui, oui, pupu, monsieur, bubukaka, he said, trying to sound as French as possible. The Russians exploded into laughter, healthy, good-humoured laughter. It was such good laughter that the French couldn't resist, and they found themselves laughing too. They laughed so much that it seemed the only reasonable thing to do now was to unload all the muskets, blow up the ammunition, and all everyone go home safe and sound. But alas, the guns remained loaded. The gun holes in the blockhouses and entrenchments remained just as ominous, and the cannons remained planted where they were, ready to blow each other to smithereens. All right, there we go. There's a chapter for you. I love that on the front lines, with all the tension of two armies facing each other at the very front where they're meeting and waiting for the word go, they're just having a laugh together and almost getting along. All right, have your say about that one over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.